Welcome to the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. This podcast will be a sharing of part of my morning routine as I prepare for the day with the Word of God. We will be partaking of Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision, each day's morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the newest and, I believe, the most accurate translation of the Word of God. We will be following a Bible reading calendar that provides for reading the whole Bible in a year that was created by Minister Robert Murray McShane for his congregation back in 1842, and that has been a part of my daily reading for over six years now. Good morning and welcome to the morning segment of the Tuesday, June 13th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I am Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. You can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. A lot of great listening over there. Definitely worth your while to take a trip over there and dig up something you want to listen to. Believe me, I can almost guarantee you that you will find something you want to listen to over there. I also want to continue to re- continue to point you at the uh, final links in our show notes. Sorry, a little repetitive there. Um, the first of them is for the Vail Valley Baptist Church Give, Sing, Go campaign. Uh, we are striving to rapidly pay off our mortgage so that we can commence establishment of a Christian classic education-based school to provide a trustworthy alternative within our community. Go ahead and click on the link. Uh, It'll give you a much more thorough description than I just did. And then we would ask three things of you. We'd ask for you to pray for us. We'd ask you to, excuse me, prayerfully consider giving to us. And we'd ask you to pass the link along. All right. Well, the final link in our show notes, um, it's labeled Transportation for Church Planners Jollies. Uh, Nathaniel Jolly and his wife are church planners up in Alaska. Um, When they headed up there a couple years ago, they went and bought an automobile up there. Um, it was a used automobile. It is now broke down. They need about $8,000 to fix it, which will obviously be cheaper uh, than, than trying to buy, trying to replace it with something else. Uh, this vehicle is critical to them. Um, and Nathaniel, being a church planner, does not draw a salary. So, I mean, he, he really has no income to be able to try to fix this. Um, so, again, go click on that link as well. And uh, Nathaniel does a very good job of describing what he's doing there. He's a great brother in Christ. Uh, definitely worth worth our help. Um, so please, again, do the same thing. Pray for them, prayerfully consider giving to them, and pass the link along so others can do the same. All right, well, we're going to do our, uh, for our morning segment, we're going to go ahead and do our Bible reading, and then we'll be doing more Bible study this evening, continuing on in John chapter 8. We're coming towards the end of John chapter 8. We'll be moving on into John chapter 9. I think we'll be doing it this week, but, it, you know, it's what God wills. We'll see what happens. But let's go ahead and open up. With our third day morning prayer, it's called God, Creator, and Controller. Let's pray. Most high God, the universe with all its myriad creatures is thine, made by thy word, upheld by thy power, governed by thy will. But thou art also the Father of mercies, the God of all grace, the bestower of all comfort, the protector of the saved. Thou hast been mindful of us, hast visited us, preserved us, given us a goodly heritage, the holy scriptures, the joyful gospel, the savior of souls. We come to thee in Jesus' name, make mention of his righteousness only, plead his obedience and sufferings, who magnified the law both in its precepts and penalty and made it honorable. May we be justified by his blood, saved by his life, joined to his spirit. Let us take up his cross and follow him. May the agency of thy grace prepare us for thy dispensations. Make us willing that thou shouldst choose our inheritance and determine what we shall retain or lose, suffer or enjoy. 
If blessed with prosperity, may we be free from its snares and use, not abuse its advantages. May we patiently and cheerfully submit to those afflictions which are necessary when we are tempted to wander, hedge up our way, excite in us abhorrence of sin, wean us from the present evil world, assure us that we shall at last enter Emmanuel's land where none is ever sick and the sun will always shine. Amen. All right. Our morning devotion from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening for June 13th. Uh, the text for it is from Revelation twenty-two seventeen. Whosoever will let him take the water of life freely. Jesus says, take freely. He wants no payment or preparation. He seeks no recommendation from our virtuous or for, yeah, from our virtuous emotions, sorry. If you have no good feelings, if you are if you be but willing, you are invited. Therefore come. You have no belief and no repentance, come to him and he will give them to you. Come just as you are and take freely without money and without price. He gives himself to needy ones. The drinking fountains at the corners of our streets are valuable institutions. And we can hardly imagine anyone so foolish as to feel for his purse when he stands before one of them and to cry, I cannot drink because I have not five pounds in my pocket. However poor the man is, there is the fountain, and just as he is, he may drink of it. Thirsty passengers as they go by, whether they are dressed in fustain or in broadcloth, do not look for any warrant for drinking. Its being there is their warrant for taking its water freely. The liberality of some good friends has put the refreshing crystal there, and we take it and ask no questions. Perhaps the only persons who need go thirsty through the streets where there is a drinking fountain are the fine ladies and gentlemen who are in their carriages. They are very thirsty, but cannot think of being so vulgar as to get out to drink. It would demean them, they think, to drink at a common drinking fountain. So they ride by with parched lips. Oh, how many there are who are rich in their own good works, and cannot therefore come to Christ. I will not be saved, they say, in the same way as the harlot or the swearer. What, go to heaven in the same way as a chimney sweep? Is there no pathway to glory but the path which led the thief there? I will not be saved that way. Such proud boasters must remain without the living water, but whosoever will let him take the water of life freely." All right. Um, just some, for some clarification, um, in England at that time in the 19th century, where Spurgeon is talking about, and I don't know if they're still there. I've never been. Um, there were water, there were water fountains, drinking fountains along the streets at certain intervals that anybody could use and didn't have to pay for. And that's what he's talking about. And he's using that as an image or a reference to Christ providing the living water. He's providing it freely. But how many of us, you know, um, try to use our own worth as a way to say, no, 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 I can't be saved that way by taking the free gift. We try to earn our way in there. And, and that's what he talks about. I mean, that's how he's referring to the rich people that ride along in their carriages and won't stop and choose so vulgar a way to drink at the fountain, even though they're thirsty. It's the same way with us. If, if we're, if we're not willing to do this Christ's way, which is the only way God's way, which is the only way then we won't be saved. There will be no living water for us. And that's what Spurgeon is saying there. Okay, sorry, I just wanted to clarify because I realized um, he's using imagery that doesn't exist in 21st century America. So I realized it might it might not have the impact. You might not understand it as well. I don't, I don't mean that at you. It's just 
It was some studying I had done on that. All right, let's do our reading. Our reading for the day is going to be 1 Kings 11, 1 Kings 12, 1 through 19, Acts 9, 1 through 25, Psalm 131, and Proverbs 17, verses 4 and 5. All right, 1 Kings 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not go along with them, nor shall they go along with you, for they will surely turn your heart away from their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had seven hundred wives, princesses, and three hundred concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Now it happened at the time that Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to Yahweh his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and did not follow Yahweh fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now Yahweh was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not walk after other gods, but he did not keep what Yahweh had commanded. So Yahweh said to Solomon, because this has happened with you, you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you. So I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the, all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Then Yahweh raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the seed of the king in Edom. Now it happened that when David was in Edom, and Joab the commander of the army had gone up to bury the slain, and had struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel stayed there six months, until he had cut off every male in Edom. That Hadad fled to Egypt, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him, while Hadad was a young boy. Then they arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he gave him a house and assigned him food and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so he gave him as a wife the sister of his own wife, the sister of Tapenis, the queen. And the sister of Tapenis bore his son Janubath, and Tapenis weaned him in Pharaoh's house, and Janubath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers, and that Joab the commander of the army had died. So Hadad said to Pharaoh, Send me away that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said to him, But what have you lacked with me, that behold you are seeking to go to your own country? And he answered, Nothing. Nevertheless, you must surely let me go. And God raised up another adversary to him, Rezan the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord Hadadezer, king of Zobah. And he gathered men to himself and became commander of a marauding band after David killed some of them, and they went to Damascus and stayed there and reigned in Damascus. So he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon, along with the evil that Hadad did, and he abhorred Israel and reigned over Aram. Now Jeroboam the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeredah, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also raised his hand against the king. 
Now this was the reason why he raised his hand against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of his father David. Now the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor, and Solomon saw that the young man was industrious and appointed him over all the load-bearers of the house of Joseph. Now it happened at that time that Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, and that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him on the road. Now he had covered himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak which was on him, and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says Yahweh the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my sight, and to keep my statutes and my judgments, as his father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David. David, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, the ten tribes. But to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over whatever your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you, and build you an enduring house, as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Thus I will afflict the seed of David for this, but not always. Solomon sought, therefore, to put Jeroboam to death. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, the king of Egypt. And he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, and whatever he did, and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? Thus the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was forty years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David. And his son Rehoboam became king in his place. 1 Kings 12 Then Rehoboam went to Shishim, for all Israel had come to Shishim to make him king. And it happened when Jeroboam the son of Nebat heard of it, he was living in Egypt, for he was yet in Egypt where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. Then they sent and called for him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke harsh, but you now lighten the harsh service of our father and his heavy yoke, I'm sorry, of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. Then he said to them, Go for three days, then return to me. So the people went away. The king Rehoboam took counsel with the elders who had stood before his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to respond to this people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today, and will serve them and grant them their petition, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had counseled him, and took counsel with the young men who grew up with him, and stood before him. So he said to them, What counsel do you give that we may res- that we may respond to this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? Then the young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us. 
Thus you shall speak to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. So now my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had spoken, saying, Return to me on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him. And he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from Yahweh that he might establish his word, which Yahweh spoke through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Then all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them. So the people responded to the king with this word, saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him, and he died. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Acts 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that when he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me. That is Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he rose up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. And for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be astounded and were saying, is this not the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those that called on his, on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this one is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to put him to death. 
but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Yahweh, my heart is not exalted, and my eyes are not raised high, and I do not invoke myself in great matters, or in matters too marvelous for me. Surely I have soothed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, wait for Yahweh from now until forever. And finally, Proverbs 17, verses 4 and 5. An evildoer gives heed to lips of wickedness. A liar gives ear to a destructive tongue. He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who is glad at disaster will not go unpunished. All right. Well, that is our reading for the day. Um, thank you for spending this time with me. I've very much enjoyed it with you. Um, I hope you'll come back for the evening. I hope you have a wonderful day. I would continue to implore you to do all that you do for the glory of God. And again, like I said, I hope to see you for the evening segment. Let's go ahead and close out with prayer. Uh, the prayer we're going to use from Valley Vision is called Grace Active, and I didn't have a link for this, so I'm reading it straight out of the books, which makes it a little bit harder here. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, great high priest, thou hast opened a new and living way by which a fallen creature can approach thee with acceptance. Help me to contemplate the dignity of thy person, the perf perfectness of thy sacrifice, the effectiveness of thy intercession. Oh, what blessedness accompanies devotion. When under all the trials that weary me, the cares that, I'm sorry, when under all the trials that weary me, the cares that corrode me, the fears that disturb me, the infirmities that oppress me. I can come to thee in my need and feel peace beyond understanding. The grace that restores is necessary to preserve, lead, guard, supply, help me. And here, and here thy saints encourage my hope. They were once poor and are now rich, bound and are now free, tried and now are victorious. Every new duty calls for more grace than I now possess, but not more than is found in thee the divine treasury in whom all fullness dwells. To thee I repair for grace upon grace, until every void made by sin be replenished, and I am filled with all thy fullness. May my desires be enlarged and my hopes emboldened, that I may honor thy, thee by my entire dependency and the greatness of my expectation. Do thou be with me and prepare me for all the smiles of prosperity, the frowns of adversity, the losses of substance, the death of friends, the days of darkness, the changes of life, and the last great change of all. May I find thy grace sufficient for all my needs. Amen. All right. Well, again, I hope you have a wonderful evening and I hope to see you for the or a wonderful day and I hope to see you for the evening segment. Have a good one. God bless. Welcome to the evening segment of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Tuesday, June 13th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. Um, we are going to be continuing on in our Bible study. So let's go ahead and let's jump right in. Let's go ahead and open up with prayer. Uh, the prayer we're going to be opening up with from Valley of Vision is called Penitence penitence. I'm sorry. Let me tuck something out of the way. There we go. Let's pray. 
O Lord of grace, I have been hasty and short in private prayer. O quicken my conscience to feel this folly, to bewail this ingratitude. My first sin of the day leads into others, and it is just that thou shouldst withdraw thy presence from one who waited carelessly on thee. Keep me at all times from robbing thee and from depriving my soul of thy due worship. Let me never forget that I have an eternal duty to love, honor, and obey thee, that thou art infinitely worthy of such, that if I fail to glorify thee, I am guilty of infinite evil that merits infinite punishment. For sin is the violation of an infinite obligation. Oh, forgive me if I have, I'm sorry, oh, forgive me if I have dishonored thee. Melt my heart, heal my backslidings, and open an intercourse of love. When the fire of thy compassion warms my inward man, and the outpourings of thy spirit fill my soul, then I feelingly wonder at my own depravity, and deeply abhor myself. Then thy grace is a powerful incentive to repentance, and an irresistible motive to inward holiness. May I never forget that thou hast my heart in thy hands. Apply to it the merits of Christ's atoning blood whenever I sin. Let thy mercies draw me to thyself. Wean me from all evil, mortify me to the world, and make me ready for my departure hence, animated by the humiliations of penitential love. My soul is often a chariot without wheels, clogged and hindered in sin's miry clay. Mount it on eagle's wings, and cause it to soar upward to thyself. Amen. All right. In our evening devotion... Uh, for June 13th from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. The text is from Proverbs 30, verse 8. Actually, it seems like there's two. Proverbs 30, verse 8, 30, verse 8 remove far from me vanity and lies. And then Psalm 38, 21. Oh my God, be not far from me. Here we have two great lessons, what to deprecate and what to supplicate. The happiest state of a Christian is the holiest state. As there is the most heat nearest to the sun, so there is the most happiness nearest to Christ. No Christian enjoys comfort when his eyes are fixed on vanity. He finds no satisfaction unless his soul is quickened in the ways of God. The world may win happiness elsewhere, but he cannot. I do not blame ungodly men for rushing to their pleasures. Why should I? Let them have their fill. That is all they have to enjoy. A converted wife who despaired of her husband was always very kind to him, for she said, I fear that this is the only world in which he will be happy, and therefore I have made up my mind to make him as happy as I can in it. Christians must seek their delight in a higher sphere than the insipid frivolities or sinful enjoyments of the world. Vain pursuits are dangerous to renewed souls. We have heard of a philosopher who, while he looked up to the stars, fell into a pit but how deeply do they fall who look down? Their fall is fatal. No Christian is safe when his soul is slothful and his God is far from him. Every Christian is always safe as to the great matter of his standing in Christ, but he is not safe as regards his experience and holiness and communion with Jesus in his life. Satan does not often attack a Christian who is living near to God. It is when the Christian departs from his God, becomes spiritually starved, and endeavors to feed on vanities that the devil discovers his, his, sorry, his vantage hour. He may sometimes stand foot to foot with the child of God who is active in his master's service, but the battle is generally short. He who slips as he goes down into the, into the valley of humiliation, every time he takes a false step, invites Apollyon to assail him. Oh, for grace to walk humbly with our God. 
All right. Well, we're going to continue on in our um, Bible study and our study of John chapter eight. Uh, we are in a section again that is about Jesus confronting his enemies. And we dealt with the dishonor yesterday, and we're going to be deal with the, dealing with the doubting today. So we're in verses 52 through 58. So again, we're almost at the end. Tomorrow, God willing, we'll deal with verse 59. And then, God willing, the end of the week, we'll be on into John chapter 9. So let me read you John chapter 8, verses 52 through 58. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. Okay, I'm sorry. Let me read verse 51. This is what, what it follows from what Jesus says to them. So Jesus in verse 51 says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death ever. So 52, here, here comes their response. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death ever. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. And you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. All right, those are our verses for today. So again, Sorry, backed away from the mic there for a minute. So again, we've we've watched this. You know, again, um, just briefly, we've seen Jesus go head to head with these same folks in Jerusalem, um, John five and six, um, at the previous Passover feast, and here in John seven and eight at the what what is current for our reading, the current feast of uh, booths or feast of tabernacles. And, and we talked about what that, that means, what that feast was. So we're six months before. So the next Passover, which will be in six months, because it happened every year, will be when Jesus is crucified. But he's been going head to head with this Jew, Jewish leadership through these four chapters, you know, at these two different feasts, he's been going head to head with them. He he's button heads with him hardcore and he means to be, he's trying to point out, he's trying to make very, very clear again, as I've said before, shoot, I said in Sunday in my, um, in my sermon that we've got to understand that what the, what the, this Jewish leadership has twisted the beautiful religion that God gave them, this beautiful belief in God and the, and this beautiful walk and the law that he gave them, how beautiful it was, and the, the, the ridiculous dumpster fire they've turned it into over the thousands of years since he gave it to them, um, particularly during the intertestamental period, that they so twisted it up that what they're observing like I said in my sermon on Sunday, what they're observing bears absolutely zero resemblance to what God handed them through Moses as he rescued them from Egypt. It has nothing to do with it anymore. And he's been trying to point that out to them. And, and we saw that about the truth making you free and the pathway to freedom and the pretense of freedom and the promise of freedom that we saw as we've moved through John chapter 8. And Jesus points out very, very clearly that, that they're missing the boat. That, that, that 
they're not the, that they're not the slaves of Abraham, that they're not the slaves of Christ, that they're the slaves of the devil. And then he goes on um, and, and verses 37 through 47, we see the section that MacArthur called the children of Abraham or Satan. And it was a question. And we saw there that, that these same Jewish leaders tried to claim that they were the physical children of Abraham, which technically they were, but it doesn't matter that they, they seem to think that meant something. Jesus made very clear that that had nothing to do with it nothing whatsoever. Even John the Baptist knew that and told him, don't sit there and talk to me about being children of Abraham. If, if God wanted to, he could turn these rocks right here into children of Abraham, you know, so that had no bearing, but they tried to claim they were the spiritual children of Abraham, except Jesus shows very clearly if they truly were, they would behave totally different. And that the way they are behaving is not the way the children of Abraham would actually behave. So Jesus is very, very clear with them there. And then, then he turns around and they try to claim, they then try to claim that they're children of God. And he makes very, very clear that if they were truly children of God, they would behave differently. They wouldn't behave the way they're behaving. So again, he makes very, very clear that they make all these claims, but the fact is the fruit is not, is not standing up to it. That the fruit does not show them as being the children of God. He's very, very clear about that. So again, we see very clearly that these are not the children of Abraham, the spiritual children of Abraham, and they are not the children of God. So again, we hit this section that we started last evening where that MacArthur calls that Jesus confronts his enemies, and he does. He's confronting his enemies. These people are his enemies now. These are not just re religious leaders trying to sit there and evaluate what's going on with him and evaluate him and evaluate his teachings. They are his enemies. They are clearly his enemies. And we saw in the first four verses, they they clearly dishonored him. Um, they turned around and called him a Samaritan. And we talked about that last night, how much of an insult that was. And then they told they said that he had a demon. Basically, it was saying he was crazy. I mean, they were they were laying out basically that he was nuts. He was crazy. So we get into our section today, and you know, so we saw the dishonor, and now we're seeing the doubting. They're showing their doubt of anything that he has proclaimed to this point. So we lead into verse 52 here. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death ever. So again, they're having a problem with him having said, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death ever. And their thing is they're taking it literally. They're taking it literally um, that he's they're taking it as that he's speaking of the physical death, the physical death, but that's not what he's talking about. So of course they go, well, Abraham did die and the prophets did die, but these were men of God that God attested to. And, and so obviously they'd be keeping your words as so you proclaim. So why are they dead? Because they're thinking it's physical death. And of course, that's not what Jesus was referring to. He's referring to the second death, the spiritual death. And we'll go on and see that as it continues. It's the second death. He's referring to the spiritual death. We that are saved, we won't see the second death. We won't, not at all. Um, and he's very clear about that. It's clear through the gospels. It's clear through the epistles. It's clear throughout the New Testament that those that are saved will not see the second death. And so that's what he's saying. But of course, they're, they're doubting, going, you must have a demon. You know. So again, they go back to insulting him. It's the ad hominem attack again. 
And then they completely misconstrue what he said. Of course they do. They've been doing this for at least, you know, John five, six, and then seven and eight. So, you know, I mean, go figure four chapters here over, you know, two whole festivals has been, you know, near, you know, over six months that they've been doing this. But then they go on to verse 53 and they ask the question, surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Again, so that so again, it, it makes clear here <clears throat> what they're referring to is the physical death. And they're saying, listen, Abraham actually died. The prophets actually died. So they say it flat out. They've actually died, yet look what you've claimed. Who do you think you are? I mean, that's basically what they're asking. Who do you think you are that you can say these things? Now, the fact is what that shows is they've very clearly either not understood what he said previously or they're being, as we've talked about before, they're being in intentionally ignorant because he has proclaimed repeatedly that he is God incarnate, that he is the son of God. He's proclaimed it repeatedly. So obviously they're choosing, well, either they're, they're, they're just slow on the uptake or they're intentionally ignoring that. So we move on into verse 54, and Jesus responds to them, and he answers, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Basically saying, listen, if I were to run around trying to glorify myself, yeah, it wouldn't be a big deal. But he goes on, it is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. <clears throat> now again, this is actually, the way I see it, this is actually a double emphasis. It is my father who glorifies me. He is repeatedly, just in John 7 and 8, just in this, this discourse, this section, has said repeatedly that God was his father. So what he's saying here is, it is God who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So again, twice he says, God himself is glorifying me, the God whom you acknowledge as God and as your, as your God is the one who has glorified me. But then he goes on into verse 50, and then we go on into verse 55, and Jesus goes on and he continues to call them out. He goes, you have not known him. You know, they claim to know God. These are, these are the religious leaders these are the spiritual leaders. These are the people who claim to be the experts on God. But Jesus clearly calls them out. You don't know him. And he's trying to get across the point that if you knew him, you wouldn't behave the way you're doing. As he, as he pointed out previously in that section about them being the children of children of Abraham or children of Satan. And uh, so he goes on here. You've not known him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. Again, making clear that they're liars, that they claim to be children of God, but their behavior bears the lie out. Makes clear that no matter what they say, their actions make clear that they're liars. But then he goes on to, to say about himself, but I do know him and keep his word. He makes clear that he actually does know God. He clearly knows God. He clearly knows his father and he's obedient and, and he says that he's not just saying that to go, go look at me. I'm obedient. He's saying, I'm obedient where you are not. I'm behaving obediently and you are choosing not to be obedient. That's what he's saying to them. He's calling them out again. As I've said before, he, he's not, when he says, 
but I do know him and keep his word. He's not saying that in a vacuum. Again, he's not just saying that randomly. And I know I'm repeating myself, but we need to understand this. He's not just saying that randomly. He's saying it because he's saying they're not being obedient. That's what he's saying here. That's the implication he's making when he says, but I do know him and keep his word. Then he goes on. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. This verse 56, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Now, what he's referring to here is that Abraham saw the promise of the Messiah coming in Isaac, in Isaac and what happened with Isaac and the whole Abraham going to sacrifice him and then then God providing the sacrifice instead and all that. That was a foreshadowing of Christ in Christ's sacrifice. Abraham saw that and rejoiced to see that, to see that God would fulfill the promises he had made to him. And he goes on to state that Abraham saw it and was glad. Well, the fact is, if these Jews actually knew their scriptures as they thought they did, they would have understood this. But they don't. They take it literally. Again, they take it literally, of course. They completely miss the point. We hit verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Again, they're, like I said, they're taking it literally. They're, they're missing the point. No, that's true. Jesus is not yet 50 years old. Fact is, from all we can tell, he was in his early 30s at this point. So of course he's not 50 years old in this incarnation. But again, and, and Jesus wasn't necessarily yet claiming that he had directly seen Abraham. That wasn't the point he was making. He was making the point that Abraham saw the coming of his day, that Abraham looked down through time, not, not literally having foreknowledge, but in, in what happened with Isaac and the promise God had fulfilled with bringing Isaac to him, giving him Isaac as a son, and then redeeming Isaac with, with the lamb that was caught in the bush. I think it was a lamb or a ram or whatever that was caught in the bush. He saw the coming of a Messiah, a savior that would save the, the children of Abraham down through the ages. And he rejoiced and was glad in it. This is what Jesus was saying. But of course, they, they take it literally. Like I said, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And we've got to look the the most important statement throughout this diet, throughout this discourse is here in verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So again, what does the truly, truly mean? It means you better sit up and take notice. I'm about to lay a heavy, heavy truth on you, and you better take it in. And then he goes on, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego eimi, I am. Before Abraham was, I am God, Yahweh. That's what he's saying there. Before Abraham was, I am. What he is, what he is showing clearly there is I was before Abraham and I am eternal. Making clear, I am God. I am the son of God. I am God incarnate. 
making so clear to them that they've so missed the point here that they're not God's children, his spiritual children. They're not Abraham's spiritual children. The fact is they are in direct conflict, even though they claim to be the religious leaders and those that represent God to the people, they are making very, very clear that they are in direct conflict with God. And he's he's trying to lay this out. And honestly, knowing the love of Christ, he's trying to lay it out to turn them back, to bring them to redemption, to bring them to repentance and faith. Now, we don't have records as to whether that really brings them back to it and how many are ever, ever come to it. But what we'll end up seeing tomorrow is their response to it their response to this, where he makes clear to them, before Abraham was, I am. How critical that is. And it says it to us too. Before Abraham was, I am. Please do not let anybody ever sit there and try to teach you that Jesus was a nice guy. Jesus was a good guy. Uh, Jesus was a nice teacher. Jesus was there just for, oh, I, I've heard this from somebody I love dearly. Well, Jesus's whole point was to be here to show us an example of how we should live. No, it wasn't. I mean, yes, he did provide a good example and that's great, but that's not what he was here for. That's not what he was here for. He was here to die on a cross for you and me. He was here to take our sins upon us, to live a perfect life, impute his righteousness to us, take our sins on him, and die on the cross and pay the penalty for those sins so that we don't have to, so that we can have saving faith in Christ, and so that we can stand holy and blameless before a just God, so that God can be both just and the justifier. That's why he came not to be a good example. Please don't let people say that to you because by saying that to you, they, they belittle the fact that he is God incarnate. God's not a motivational speaker. God's not sitting there trying to be your life coach. He is God. He is the infinite God. In this case, God incarnate. And that's what he's showing him, them here. And all they're doing is doubting which is a mistake for them and is a mistake for you and me. Because again, what have we talked about? What is, what is the crux of the gospel of John? To show us all these things so that we would believe that he is the Christ, the son of God, and that in believing we would have life in his name, everlasting life. That's the purpose. And that's what we see here in these verses today. All right, let's go ahead and close up. We'll go ahead and finish off with our third day evening prayer. It's called Before Sleep. Let's pray. God of all sovereignty, thy greatness is unsearchable, thy name most excellent, thy glory above the heavens. 10,000 minister to thee, 10,000 times 10,000 stand before thee. In thy awful presence, we are less than nothing. 
We do not approach thee because we deserve thy notice, for we are sinners. Our necessities compel us. Thy promises encourage us. Our broken hearts incite us. The mediator draws us. Thy acceptance of others moves us. Look thou upon us and be merciful unto us. Convince us of the penalty and pollution of sin. Give us faith to believe and believing to have life in Jesus. May we enter into his sufferings. Let us see thy hand in the instruments of our grief, rejoicing that they are from thy overruling providence. Let not our weeping hinder sowing, nor sorrow duty. While living in a world of change, let us seek the abiding city. Be with us to our journey's end, that we may glorify thee in death as in life. We bless thee for preservation, supplies, mercies, and to thee, keeper of souls, we commit all we are and have. May no evil befall us, no sickness come nigh us, no horror disturb us. May our conscience be clear, our hearts pure, our sleep sweet, and with the innumerable company who neither slumber nor rest, we join in ascribing blessing, honor, glory, and power to the Lamb upon the throne forever and ever. Amen. All right, I hope you have a wonderful evening, and I hope to see you tomorrow. Have a great night. God bless. Thank you.